What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How did they make decisions, both in their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. If you've been enjoying the show and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Probably the easiest way to get there if you're on a Mac is just to visit ndhackers.com slash review. In today's episode, I sat down with Scott Keys, the creator of Scott's Cheap Flights. I first spoke to Scott on the podcast about three years ago. He had started a paid mailing list where he would send out cheap deals on flights, and he'd grown it to about 600,000 subscribers and $4 million in annual revenue, which is huge. He's actually grown it much more since then, but he's facing a bit of a crisis today because, as we all know, COVID-19, this global pandemic, has really affected the travel industry, and people just aren't flying anymore. So I wanted to check in with Scott, see how he's doing, and get some tips about how a company can survive in a crisis like this. Also, Scott is kind of an OG in the space of paid newsletters, paid content, which when he started Scott's Cheap Flights wasn't super popular, but today is blowing up. So we spent a lot of time in the latter half of this episode talking about how to start a paid newsletter, how to grow one, find an audience, and what his tips are for succeeding in this ecosystem today. I hope you enjoy the episode. Scott, we're living in very difficult times for the travel industry. It's hands down the hardest hit sector of the economy due to COVID-19. Hotels are suffering. Tourism is basically dead right now. And I think air travel is probably the hardest hit of the entire travel industry. And meanwhile, you've got a business where you're basically sending daily emails to people to help them save on flights. How are things going with you? Well, when you lay all that out, it sounds stressful as hell. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, uh, it doesn't sound like a very enviable position. And, you know, frankly, if you had told me a few months ago what coronavirus would look like over these past few months, how the pandemic would play out and what the future seems like it could be for this pandemic, I would have been, pardon my French, scared shitless. I would have been terrified. And it's not that I'm like totally feel, oh yeah, you know, confident, we're good, we're going to, you know, everything's going to be fine. But I think there are a lot of reasons why I've been much more impressed by the way the team has been able to rally together, impressed by the loyalty, frankly, uh, fortunately, that our, our members have been able to show us. And the fact that so there has been much less of a business impact, even though we are so exposed, if you will, to the travel industry. I mean, our fortunes are very closely tied to the travel industry. And yet, you know, it hasn't needed to, it's not a situation like with the airlines where every right. single day they need to sell new tickets. And every single day, you know, they're, they're starting at zero. They're trying to generate new revenue. For us being an annual subscription business, there's a significant amount of padding that is built in. And you have that loyalty that's built over the years from your, your members who aren't necessarily quite as prone to just churn or cancel at this as soon as things start to crater in the travel industry. And so the fact that we were able to, uh, fortunate enough to have this subscription business that renews on an annual basis, I think gave us a lot more, limited our exposure, if you will, to the sort of like short-term just cratering in, right. in demand. Like I would 
be quaking in my boots if I ran an airline and, and was looking at the numbers for travelers in March, in April, even in May. I mean, it's horrendous. But the fact that we are one step removed from that, mm-hmm. I think has helped the business along. And it's really kind of taught me a lot of lessons about the importance, not only of, of brand and brand loyalty, but also the importance of, of recurring subscription revenue, as opposed to the more fickle sort of day-to-day selling and day-to-day uh, revenue trends. I just want to give people kind of an idea of how bad it is for the airlines. So according to the New York Times, passenger traffic on U.S. airlines is down not like 20%, not 30 or 50%. It's down 95% from what it was this time last year, which is a borderline unbelievable number. And it's interesting that you charging basically subscription and annual subscriptions in particular is kind of shielding you from some of this because you have a lot of people who were paying for a Scotch cheap flight subscription last year who signed up in January, who quite frankly already paid. And they've got the service and all that provides for the next year. And by the time they have to make another decision, hopefully things will be sort of recovered. Uh, what's your game plan for the future? And, and how are you preventing churn besides just having an annual subscription? Before I answer that, let me ask you. Yeah. Baby noise in the background. Too, it, it, too much. I, I, I'm more than happy to move to a different room. where it I think it adds to the, to the, the atmosphere, okay. the crisis effect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a work from home uh, 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 lifestyle now. Yeah. So a couple things about that. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like when you have a uh, subscription membership, and especially one that has a long time horizon, like a year long thing rather than a, a month by month, you're not nearly as exposed to this sort of daily volatility and the monthly volatility. I mean, you know, airfare or like airplane passenger loads, the number of mm-hmm. people flying, you're right down 90, 95% sometimes, but we don't see our numbers cratering 90, 95% like that because we have the kind of the armor of the annual subscription revenue. I mean, you can imagine if the airlines lived in a different sort of industry where they were, rather than selling tickets on individual flights, they were selling their passengers. You know, you could buy a year long pass on American Airlines and fly whenever you wanted to on them, but you paid for it on, let's say, January 1st, and you had it for the rest of the year. They would be, it would be a very different business model, but in a sense, they would be less exposed to the sorts of volatility that you would see with something like a pandemic. So that's one thing. Two is travel's a really unique, a unique sphere, unlike so many other things you buy, where you pay for it usually well in advance of when you receive it. You know, imagine you go down to the shoe store and you're trying to get your newest pair of Jordans and you pay for it and they're like, all right, you can get it in like six months or something. Like for most people, that's like, the heck is this? You know, for most things, when you pay for your dinner, when you pay for your newest shoes, when you pay for your bike, you pay for your guitar, you get it right then, or like, you know, as long as it takes to ship it to your house. But for vacations, you'll book it three months in advance, six months in mm. advance. You know, I booked flights up to a year in advance. And the and it's just a different sort of model than most other things. And so what that means though is in something like a pandemic, even though we know it's not safe to travel today. And it's not safe probably to travel tomorrow or, or even necessarily next month. There is going to be a day, hopefully sooner rather than later, but there is going to be a day when it is safe to travel. And folks are in a really unique position right now. Travelers are where they are seeing both A, incredibly low fares for travel you know, up to 12 months out, and B, 
the airlines have, because they're seeing so little demand, they're seeing you know their new bookings plummet, they have announced that they're essentially waiving change fees on all new bookings. So what that means is that if you book a new flight today on Delta, even if it's for, let's say, Christmas or into 2021, Delta will say, you can change your flight if it's not safe to travel come trip time. If you don't want to travel, you, you know, you don't even have to give a reason. It's just, it doesn't have the normal sorts of change fees that are associated with booking, with booking flights. And so that puts travelers in this really kind of heads I win, tails you lose situation where they can lock in the low fares today for future travel and still have the flexibility to change it if they feel like it's not safe to travel. So I think the fact that people not only are wise to that, they recognize this is a really unique and advantageous position that travelers in that is not normal at all. But B, there's a bit of FOMO. You know, even though folks know it's not safe to travel right now during the pandemic, you might say, well, six months, nine months, 12 months in the future. It might be. I sure hope it is. And I don't want to miss out on some amazing deals, you know, some once in a lifetime deals because I turned my subscription to Scotty Flights or because I didn't sign up and I missed out on the deal. So there's that element of even though it might not want to travel today, there is still, I think, a, a huge element of folks who might want to travel in the next year. And for them, they said, yeah, it's still worth it then because because I want to make sure I'm not missing out in the meantime. And what's kind of cool is you seem to have changed your service to kind of reflect this. And so the core Scotch Cheap Flight Service, which sends out these flight deals, you're sending out deals for flights that are taking off further into the future to sort of reflect that uncertainty and also deals, uh, I believe, that feature these change fees and waive all change fees so that, you know, assuming you're a Scotch Cheap Flights customer, you don't even have to worry about figuring this out on your own. You just kind of automatically get these advantages. That's right. You know, we, I mean, we've always had certain criteria for the deals we send. Like at A, obviously it has to be cheap. Like it's right there in the name. But B, it doesn't just have to be cheap. Like I'm not, we're not going to send out you know, a six stop, like 50 hour flight to Europe, just like a scented trash bag of a flight like that. <laughs> nobody, nobody's interested in that. We, we have a, a test. We frankly should probably be promoting this more, but we use what's called the mom test. Not only does it have to be cheap, but it has to be a deal we think our moms would be interested in. And, you know, a five hour flight or sorry, a five stop flight to Europe, she's not going to be interested in that. But if it's a nonstop flight or, you know, a quick connection or something at, a, at an amazing price, then yeah. So not only do we have those original criteria for the deals that we sent up. But you're right, we layered on these new criteria because of the pandemic to balance a couple things, right? I mean, A, first and foremost, we wanted to balance the fact that we are all living in a public health crisis right now. I mean, it's a pandemic. We just passed, you know, 100,000 people who have died in the US today. It's horrible, just awful. And so we needed to be not just mindful and human beings first, but also needed to make sure that we were being good corporate citizens and good company that isn't trying to just like only be looking out for the bottom line, but also kind of demonstrating in our actions that we that this actually really matters to us. This is really important. And not only did we uh, want to make sure we we're being good corporate citizens on one side of the ledger, but also balancing what we felt like our responsibilities to our members. You know, folks have signed up for this. They, they are signed up for Scotch Flights because they want to know about when those really cheap deals pop up out of their home airport. And so we didn't want to say like, all right, we're just going to close up shop until there's a vaccine because we think that there is, we think there are ways to be able to travel responsibly and safely. Even if that is not today, we're still very hopeful and, and mindful that that day will come and we hope it's much sooner than later. And so we wanted to make sure we were doing right by our 
our members while also doing right by sort of the public health crisis that we're all facing. And, you know, look, frankly, it's a difficult thing to do. I'm not going to pretend like, oh, there's a silver bullet. There's a playbook for exactly how any company, any situation should act in a pandemic, because this is the first pandemic that most of us have ever, ever right. been in. So I remember these conversations we were having two months ago, like I was literally at the airport, you know, we we're having these big, long calls. What should we do? How should we structure it? You know, going over a bunch of different options, finally settled on, on this one because we felt like it was the right balance of being good human beings, good corporate citizens, and good company for our members itself. And I, I think it's been well-received. I sure hope so. I'm always uh, a little bit suspicious of people's evaluations of themselves because there's you know a little bit self-interest there. So don't take it from me. But if I had to go back and do it again, I don't think there's much that I would do differently. I think we handled it about as well as we could have given the circumstances. Well, I've been looking at how other travel companies have been handling this. I just went through the product pages on Indie Hackers earlier today and just looked up bootstrapped travel businesses to just see what kinds of milestones they've been posting. And it's just been tough. I mean, there's a company, the last one I looked at was a company called Help Stay. Uh, they basically allow you to travel and stay for free if you agree to volunteer for whoever you're staying with. And they're, one of their latest milestones is basically that they're just going into hibernation mode for the duration of the pandemic because like travel for them is just dead. And then you have bigger companies, of course, Boeing just recently laid off 12,000 people. It's looking like a lot of airlines are going to have mass layoffs in October when their funding runs out because they're sort of being artificially propped up by the government right now. So it's pretty interesting to talk to you where things don't seem to be going that bad. You know, I didn't know what to expect from this conversation. I didn't know if you were going to come on and be like, hey, please sign up. We've lost <laughs> 95% of our subscribers. So yeah, I agree. I think looking at Scott Chief Flights from the inside, I would say you're handling it pretty well. And I, well, and I think it's important to timestamp this, right? Because we're talking on May 27th and things have been very far from what I would have imagined the worst case scenario would be for the company, especially given, you know, how horrendous it's been for of the world as a whole. That said, the future, I think, is largely dependent on questions that we don't know the answers to right now. And those are largely medical questions. Sorry, I've got a cat in front of me. Any podcast listeners might not be able to notice, but she stepped right in front of my mic. Um, <laughs> Welcome, cat. Yeah, exactly. So what I mean by that is pharmaceutical companies and scientists who are studying you know, drugs and therapeutics and treatments and vaccines make great progress and really kind of knock it out of the park in the next three to six months, that's going to be a very different future for Scotty flights than one where, you know, the treatments fail, the vaccines aren't looking effective. And we're looking at, you know, multi like two or three years until we feel like humanities beat this and travel just craters for years on end. And so, look, I'm not going to pretend like that wouldn't be an incredibly challenging thing for Scottsdale Flights and for travel companies around the world. I've been relieved and impressed with the team and the way we've all been able to pull through it thus far, you know, two and a half months in. I think it is important to note from a business standpoint that two and a half months in isn't, isn't the the be-all, end-all of where things are going to look. I think there are some hopeful signs that we're off of what might have been the worst-case scenario that uh, from what we saw like a month or two ago. But, you know, look, we don't know if there's going to be a big second wave in the next few months. We don't know if uh, what things are going to look like from a vaccine standpoint until we have answers to those questions trying to do really long, like, like medium to long-term projections of what things look like for Scottsdale flights, much less the economy, much less the travel sector. Your guess is as good as mine. Are you doing much guessing in that area? Because those are two very different 
potential outcomes. You know, on one hand, maybe things return to normal. On the other hand, maybe travel is just dead for a few years and your business suffers tremendously. What do you do in that crazy scenario? Do you pivot into a different kind of business? Do you lay off a bunch of people and downsize? Like, what's the game plan? I think part of it is being conservative and very cognizant of the moment and being willing to being willing to make quick changes where you think they might be needed. So, you know, we've got a couple things coming out here in the next few weeks or so that I'm uh, probably in the next like month or two that I wish we were ready to announce right here, right now on air, not quite ready yet, but things that we had sort of loosely been tinkering around in our minds uh, before the pandemic became clear, but once it became clear, started to be like, okay, yeah, we need to really hit the accelerator on these matters because they're going to be extra important right now in a way that they might not have been in normal times. So that's one, being willing to change priorities as a result of this, not getting too wedded to your earlier priorities, your earlier game plan that's frankly no longer appropriate or applicable. But part two there, like at least for us, approaching it from a in a conservative manner, I think was the right approach and I think going to be helpful in the long run. And I don't mean that conservative in a political sense, but conservative in a sort of pulling back, being a, a bit defensive. So, you know, rather than pumping out tons of marketing dollars, tons of Facebook ads, tons of, of this, which we'd never really done anyway, but, you know, we'd started to dabble maybe like, hey, we maybe we should start to get into some paid, paid marketing and whatnot. But we realized, yeah, as soon as the pandemic hit, it wasn't the right time anymore. Not it wasn't the right time for two things. One, because interest in travel, you know, just went off a cliff. Nobody travel travel is not at the forefront of most people's minds right now, nor should it be. I mean, pandemic, uh, people losing their jobs, getting furloughed, get, you know, losing their hours. Those things are much, much more important and need to be fixed before travel starts to become front and center. But two, so not only would it not be effective, but you're also looking at cash flow issues from a company standpoint. I mean, if you're spending a lot of money on on marketing, that's money that can't be spent on payroll or that can't be spent on health insurance or can't be spent on things that are much more core to the business. So rather than, whereas we might have been in a much more kind of like growth uh, mode in February, by March, we said, okay, we need to get defensive right now. We need to make sure that if this thing becomes a worst case scenario if it's looking really bad we need to make sure we are are well protected for as long as we can be i mean you know no company can ride it out if you're talking about a five or ten year pandemic where there's no vaccine and nobody can travel or get on an airplane but if it's you know certain decisions we make right now might be the difference between being able to survive, say, 18 months versus being able to survive 24 months or 30 months, which you know is in the realm of possibility of when things could be getting back to normal. And so that's why you want to make those decisions now, because it gives you extra runway for when those sorts of world circumstances, giving the, for lack of a better term, giving scientists more time to hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, you know, get this thing licked and that we can all be safe again, be able to travel again, and things kind of slowly start to inch back to normal. So, you know, look, we've been really fortunate that we haven't had to do any layoffs. We haven't had to cut salaries. We haven't had to do any of those things yet. But, and I'm really hopeful and I, 
like we're basically doing, we've got a, a six point plan of everything we would do before we, it ever came to that. And we've shared that with the team because that's the most important thing in our mind is that we avoid those types of things. We want to avoid cutting anybody's pain. We certainly want to avoid having to lay anybody off. And I don't think that it's like that we'll have to, to do that, but you know, businesses is business that world circumstances are what they are. We're doing everything we can. Like I said, we've got all these other things that we would do before then, including, you know, basically taking my and, and our CEO Brian's salary based down to a dollar like doing right. all you know cutting cutting uh, stuff on the leadership team for doing all these other things before that because the most important thing in us is to try to protect our team so that we can get you know emerge from this on the other end as uh, strong and successful as possible but the other thing too though that I would note is that while it's important I think and I think it's important for us to have been defensive to have been conservative like literally to be conserving cash in case it's needed later on. We're also constantly monitoring, you know, keeping a really close eye on developments on coronavirus, watching the TSA numbers, watching interest in travel, because when we start to see back on the upswing, we want to make sure we're there to meet that demand. Like we want to make sure that we are not missing the moment. And like, you don't want to be burning money on something you think is useless, like trying to convince people in mid-March that right now is the time to be interested in travel. But you also don't want to be missing it on the other end where, you know, you're so hunkered down that you're missing out when people are starting to feel safe and comfortable hitting the road again. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's kind of a tight balancing act where you have to always be aware of what's going on because, you're right. You want to start investing very quickly if things start turning around and nobody knows when that's going to be. It's it's a funny thing that it's. I never would have expected that part of my job would become amateur armchair epidemiologist, <laughs> well, you know, that I'd have to be like sitting there dissecting various like seven day rolling average charts and making sure I'm accounting for the number of tests vis-a-vis the number of cases. But these are unusual times we're living in. And I'm trying to do my best to be conversant in what's happening while without being overly optimistic, but also not being overly pessimistic either. So let's say I'm a founder and I don't have a six point plan. I may have already cut my salary. I may have already sort of cut my marketing budget. And what are some other points on that plan that I might want to adopt to help me kind of survive for the long haul and get to the other side of this? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a number of other items that certainly we've explored that I know that are on the table, everything from cutting the expenses of of benefits, certain perks that are really important in good times, you know, equipment perks, work from home perks, various other sort of 401k matching things that are important and nice to have, but less important than somebody having a job, like less important than somebody being able to have a salary and put food on the table. There's things like that, things like loans from banks, things like, you know, maybe you're a company that either had only taken very little angel investing or had been totally bootstrapped and maybe decide, you know, look, it's more important to me that my company survive or that I have to do layoffs than being able to say I've been a bootstrap company for forever and I'm I'm ideologically ideologically is very important to me. Like maybe that is. And for a lot of companies that's going to be important. But I think it's also important to be clear minded. Like is that as important to you as not having to lay off folks who are your coworkers? And everybody's decision is going to be differently on on matters like that. And then it's also kind of being very ruthless with cutting spending on things that might feel extraneous when you are in a pandemic. You know, there are a lot of things that can be really nice to have, you know, everybody has their own account on various SAAS companies and being able to do things really efficiently. But 
look, that comes at a price. And right. when it's really when it's economic boom times, yeah, absolutely, go for it. You know, pedal to the metal. And when we're in a recession, you know, possibly bordering on a depression, it looks a little bit different when you're looking at you know four or five figure expenses going out for these various SAS companies and plugins and whatnot. And you start to have to tell the team like, look, it might be in normal times be important to have this, but is that more important than not having to lay off folks? Or is that more important than not having to cut salaries? It's not an easy thing to do. And every team has to kind of go through and look ruthlessly at their expense sheet. But I think it's important, especially with something like this, that is so wide reaching, not only the impacts of the virus itself, but the second order economic effect of the the economy as a whole looking far worse shape today than it did three months ago. You mentioned this idea that you might be a bootstrap company. There's a lot of pride in being a bootstrap company. And the idea of fundraising is kind of beyond the pale for you. But you might have to do it to get through the pandemic. I know the last time we spoke, Scotch Sheep Flights had bootstrapped. Are you still a bootstrap company today? We are still a bootstrap company. We've been profitable since day one. Very fortunate and lucky to be able to, to say that. And it's something that we, I personally, have never been ideologically one, oh, you know, I never would take funding or, oh, I definitely want to take funding, but only in the right circumstances. For me, it was just a practical question like, hey, did we need the money? And we we're fortunate that we never did. Like the very first month that I started when it was just me, my expenses were $50. That was what it cost to have a MailChimp account and be able to send out to 5,000 people. And my revenue that month was $200. So I got 100 people to sign up at two bucks a month and I made $150 that month. And let me tell you, I felt like Scrooge McDuck, just like swimming through those gold coins. I was living it up. And that so just sort of continued over the months over and over the years now that our revenue is always well outpaced our expenses. Fortunate enough to be a work from home company since the beginning. So we're really prepared for something like this pandemic, not having to, and not having to pay the overhead of an office for rent, equipment, that type of thing. That is why for me, like fundraising just never felt that pressing because we never really needed it. I wouldn't say my thinking has super shifted one way or another, like, oh, that definitely, you know, I'll never take funding or, oh, we, you know, we got to go start fundraising tomorrow. For me, it's mostly still a practical question. Like if it's what needs to be done to make sure that the team is going to be okay and that the company is going to make it through, then yeah, it's going to be something that I'll explore. And and if it feels like we're going to be just fine, we're going to make it through. And that's not necessarily, then I might be a little bit less inclined. And it's a tricky thing too, because, you know, like what, look, what is one of the things that they say about fundraising that you want to be able to do it from a position of strength, that you only want to do it when you don't need it, which has a lot of merit to it. I don't want to pretend like that's silly advice, but it's easy to say that without also accounting for the things that you might give up by as a result of fundraising, you know, whether that. I will tell you, not having to answer to somebody else during this pandemic has been a blessing. Not having to meet certain, you know, user numbers or certain financial metrics during this during this pandemic, when frankly nobody could be expected to meet whatever metric they had set for themselves in February. Nobody could be expected to meet those in March or in April or in May. Not having to do that and only being answerable to ourselves and only be having to make decisions that we are comfortable with and that we feel is right for the company has been, I feel very lucky that to be in that position. I'm loath to give that up easily, 
but I'm also cognizant of where you know the company is and making sure that we are doing right by SEF for the long term. Yeah, I know a lot of high growth startup founders who have raised money from investors and they are expected to hit certain targets. And a lot of them, you know, are not sitting on a large war chest. They needed to raise money in April or May. And like right now, valuations are down. They're having to accept down rounds. It's just, it's brutal. Have you heard from folks about how their sort of investors, did they give them more sort of leeway given the circumstances? They say, well, look, you know, business is business. You got to meet your your obligations. I've heard a lot of that. Like investors are quite aware of what's going down and they don't necessarily think that companies are going to perform the same way that they always have, but it's different by sector. So for example, I have a friend who's got kind of a, I think the best way to describe it is it's a wine gambling business where you can basically <laughs> subscribe to this wine subscription box. And every now and then you might get a really expensive bottle uh, that you paid way less for. And business for him is booming. And like to what, for what I know, like investors you know, might expect them to have higher targets because that industry is doing so well right now. Whereas in travel, it might be the opposite, you know. But I think across the board, regardless, if you're trying to raise money, you're probably going to get a lower valuation because investors realize that people are in dire straits right now. And they're also kind of themselves uncertain about the future. We might be heading into, like like you said, a depression, which is just insane to be saying this and be serious about it. So if you're an investor, you probably want a better deal. Yeah. And I think as a bootstrapper, you just have so many natural advantages going into something like this. We've talked about a few of them. Number one, like you're already generating revenue. You're already, you know, know how to turn a profit because you had to, to get to this point. You have 2 million subscribers. Many of them are paying. Even when I interviewed you like three or four years ago, you were already doing millions a year in revenue. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's crazy. But like, that means that when a pandemic hits, you're not like, oh crap, how do I make money? Like a lot of my sort of high growth startup friends are trying to figure out right now, you've already had a business model. You don't have anyone to answer to. You've already figured out that charging annually is the best way to maximize cash flow. You just have a ton of these advantages that I think other companies don't have. Yeah. And the other thing too, that occurs to me there is the benefit of having high margins, which on the one hand sounds like a well, of course, it'd be nice to have margin, high margin. It'd be nice to have a Ferrari and it'd be nice to have you know, a, a beach house in Lake Como. But on the other hand, many companies, especially ones that are, are funded, would view a you know, multi, like a double digit, like really high profit margin as a bug, not a feature, because they would say you're not growing fast enough. You should be taking that profit margin that's sitting around and right. be plowing it back into marketing. You should be getting more users. You should be doing this and that. And without saying, you know, whether one side is correct or incorrect, I think it can, it's pretty clear that when a pandemic hits and when you need to, you know, cash you need to be conservative, having that buffer, having that margin, it's literally a margin where you can say, like, yeah, we can have a lot less revenue and still not need to make the cuts that a company that's, you know, running basically spending as much money as they take in and then all of a sudden sees their revenue drop by 20 or 30% they all of a sudden have to make some huge cuts, including, probably including layoffs, including salary cuts. And so when you are the type of company that has that more kind of slow, sustainable growth, you don't necessarily see as much volatility. Like you're not going to have the high highs of just like rocket ship, you know, millions of users a month because you plowed tens of millions into Facebook ads. But you also don't have the low lows of as soon as something drops or as soon as something goes wrong, you have to say goodbye to, to dozens of coworkers or you have to, you know, tell them that like, hey, sorry, you're, we need to cut your salary by 25%. Like it's hard to put a price on not having to have that conversation. And I feel really lucky to not, you know, to be able to continue to 
provide for so many employees. I mean, we're up to almost 40 people on the team right now, not only to be able to provide for them, but also their families for in such a tough like economically perilous time, like the fact that of having let it being able to prevent them from having to feel even worse during this pandemic is a really valuable thing to me that doesn't show up as much in this sort of balance sheet or in the discussion of, of margins and growth. But, you know, that's also just the kind of bleeding heart liberal in me and just like, oh, you know, I just want everybody to be happy and good. And so take it with a grain of salt for me. I'm not necessarily the world's best businessman. I think you put it perfectly, though. To the extent that you prioritize growth at all costs as a company, you just increase the variance. It's basically much more extreme. We're like, okay, you can reach these higher highs, but the risks are much greater. And if something bad happens, you're not necessarily going to have the cash in the bank to weather this kind of storm. And I think for the vast majority of people starting businesses out there, if you can generate a few million dollars a year in revenue or profit or more, you know, you're not going to be a unicorn company. That's just fine. And I look at you right now, you seem way happier and way more chill and relaxed than anybody running a travel business has a right to in this particular situation. I think that's a direct consequence of the fact that you're not prioritizing growth at all costs, that you are running a sort of healthy, stable business. Yeah. And listen, fingers crossed that two months from now, three months from now, that continues to be the case because look, it's a medical question. If this doesn't get licked in the next two, three years, I might not be quite as pleasant and happy-go-lucky as I am today. Let's analyze... Scotch cheap flights as a business? Because it's been several years since you've been on the podcast. I'm sure at least a few things have changed about your business model. I know you have a new CEO. I know you've probably raised prices. I don't think you used to only have annual plans back in the day, but you do now. Run us through the sort of nitty gritty. How do you make money and how do you generate profit as a newsletter? Absolutely. So the way it works is essentially airfare is such a bizarre thing that we all buy, right? Where in you have no idea what the price of any given flight is going to be on any given day. It's not like buying a gallon of milk where you go down to the store and you know if you buy a gallon, it's probably going to cost more than a half gallon. And what it cost yesterday is about what it costs today and about what it costs tomorrow. And airfare is nothing like that. It's con- you know the exact same flight we'll see from Atlanta to Amsterdam will be literally, and this is a true example, $800 on Monday, round trip on Tuesday and $1,300 on Wednesday. It's the exact same flight. And if you bought that on Tuesday, you know, glory and rainbows to you. If you bought that on Wednesday for $1,300, like God, gnashing of teeth, like it's horrible. Just awful. So because it's such a confusing, just just horrendous uh, uh, purchase that people have to make, but if you know that it's something, if you want to take an overseas vacation, if you want to travel somewhere that's more than a couple hours from your house, you almost certainly have to get on a flight. You know, there's no railroad across the Atlantic Ocean. You have to buy airfare. And so there's this thing that nobody understands how it works, and yet we all need in order to take our vacations. And that's why it's such a stressful, such a, a terrible thing. And layer on top of that, the fact that cheap flights are popping up all the time, We just don't know when and where they're happening. They're probably popping up right now or on this call. But if you didn't happen to be searching, you know, the exact right routes or the exact right dates at the exact right time, you would miss it. So rather than either having to be chained to your computer 24-7 searching for flights or having to fear that you're going to miss out on the next really good deal out of your home airport. What we do is we say, look, we love searching for flights. We love finding those deals. And when we find that next deal from your home airport, we're going to find you know the full extent of it. And we're just going to send you a little alert. And that way, you know, oh, wow, that $300 round trip flight to Amsterdam just popped up. 
do I want to take that or not? Oh, that $250 round trip flight to Hawaii just popped up. Are there dates in there that work for me? You can kind of decide for yourself, but be in the know for when those cheap flights pop up. So that's the way scholarship flights works. We just find, we're constantly searching all day, every day for those cheap flights. And we let, we alert our members to them when it pops up out of their home airport. And you're right. It's changed a lot over the years. You know, it started out just as a hobby for my friends. This is about five years ago. No, no, actually I take that back. That was seven years ago. 2013 was when it's, God, it's a new decade, man. I know. I, I, Good Lord. I cannot believe it's been the better part of a decade that I've been a cheap flight expert. This is my life now. Since 2013, you know, it started out as a hobby, just something I did for fun, for the love of the game. And then in 2015, it became an actual business where folks could, there's both a free list that you could sign up and for free. And there was also a premium list where you could pay a few bucks a month and be able to get additional perks. So those types of perks have evolved over the years and certainly evolved a lot since we last chatted. I wouldn't be able to recall exactly what the price point was then. You don't happen to to know offhand, do you? It was probably 29 bucks a year. I think you still had monthly plans too. You had some like, you know, sign up for three months or sign up for six months or something like that. Yeah, it was a little confusing. Like we had where you could kind of like pay, you know, by quarter or biannually, or we decided to scrap all that, you know, since the last time we talked and just went for a simple you can you sign up for the premium annual plan. Uh, right now, it costs 49 bucks a year. So it works out to about four bucks a month or so. Or you can be on the limited list. And the difference, you know, the folks on the, the free tier, they sign up and you get a limited number of deals out of your home airport. You can see what it's all about. For the premium list, which has a two-week free trial, you get a bunch of extra perks. So not only are you getting all the deals out of your home airport rather than just a few of them, you're also getting the mistake fares. So these are the like the holy grail of cheap flights. You know, when an airline makes a mistake and accidentally sells a ticket for way less than they meant to. Scotty flights actually started after I personally got a mistake fare, took the cheapest flight I've ever gotten in my life, which was nonstop from New York City to Milan for 130 bucks round trip. Man, like I didn't even know I wanted to go to Milan. It w- I woke up that morning, I had no idea. No, I, Milan was not on my radar. But when that $130 round trip flight to Milan pops up, it's not a question. And this like, is just like an airline employee, like like, yeah. like fat fingering something, typing the wrong number in, and exactly. now they honor it. Exactly. Like they probably meant to sell it for $1,300 and they forgot a zero. Left <laughs> out a zero. Tragic. But great for you. I know. It shit happens. But it's like they, they only last for a few hours, those mistake fares. And so you got to find out about it early so that you have enough time to book it before it disappears. So the And this is powered by just so everybody knows like you and a team of flight searchers who are experts at finding cheap fares doing this by hand. That's right. And then sending out these emails to subscribers so that we can get the deals as fast as possible. That's exactly right. That's the secret sauce to finding cheap flights is literally just searching 16, 18, 20 hours a day. You know, there's a rule of thumb call it the hot kicks principle that the better the deal, the shorter it's going to last. That $130 round trip flight to Milan, that thing only lasted about three or four hours. It only lasted as long as the airline realized it and then was able to pull the fare. And so fortunately, me and who knows how ever many other people were able to buy that flight before they pulled it and got a $130 flight to Milan. So mistake fares, we reserve for just the premium members, deals to Hawaii and Alaska. 
And then the sort of peak season deals, so middle of summer, Christmas, New Year, those kind of peak travel periods when airfare is especially expensive, but cheap flights can be especially valuable because normally it costs an arm and a leg to fly somewhere in July or you know over Christmas break. We reserve those for the premium members. And a couple other perks, you know, there's no ads in the premium emails. They get them about 45 minutes or so before folks on the free list because we want to make sure, you know, for the folks who are are paying, we want to make sure that they feel special and that they're getting what they're paying for. So your business is technically just like a paid newsletter, paid content business. And this is like my favorite kind of business this year. For whatever reason, I'm obsessed with it. Very, Very trendy. It's very trendy. And I think people are kind of sleeping on it in general technology companies, technology is becoming kind of a commodity. It's very easy for people to code. It's not really the differentiator moving forward. If you build a feature, your competitors can build a feature. And I think that makes code pretty similar to media and content, to be honest. Like if you find a cheap flight, someone else can find a cheap flight. If you write a blog post, someone else can write a blog post. And so it's a little bit hard to defend in some ways, but I think it it also means that code and media are kind of on a level playing field. And if you're sort of a fledgling indie hacker just getting started and you don't really have that much money in the bank, you don't have a big team, do you want to start you know, a SaaS company that's going to take you nine months to code some extremely complex app? Or do you want to start writing a newsletter and providing immediate value to people today or tomorrow? So I think this is a big part of the reason why it's, it's kind of blowing up. People are figuring out that people will pay for content as long as that content is actually useful. You know, It's not just something that's fun. It's something that's making them money or saving them money. And that's very clearly what you're doing with Scotch Sheep Flights. And it's also a way to really easy, lightweight way to test the market, to see if you've got product market fit, because people will tell you right away if they're willing, you'll just see it. Are people willing to pull out their credit card and pay for the information that you're gathering and sending out? And, you know, I see this as a problem, I think, in a lot of budding entrepreneurs is that they'll get very kind of hung up in their own head, gaming out various scenarios, all very theoretical, all very, you know, business plan for X, Y, or Z. And they'll spend so much time on the theoretical plan without realizing, why don't we just test a few of these things out? Like, why don't we actually just stress test it in the real world and start to see what people say? Because that's, the, you know, in the end, that's the most important metric. Are people willing to buy what you're selling? And so many, I think, business plans treat that as a sort of, we'll eventually figure it out. Whereas I would argue, that should probably be one of the very first things that you do. Agreed. You can improve the product later on. And, you know, the people who stick with you, those are going to be your early evangelists. But trying, this is one of the reasons why I think newsletters taken off places like, like Substack. You know, it's interesting. I can count at least three of the top 20 Substack writers, you know, this paid monthly or paid newsletter uh, service. At least three of the folks who are in the top 20 list there are former coworkers of mine when I was a journalist. Wow. Like literally people who, who I could just call up on the phone right now, hey, how's it going? And so there was something we you know, had all worked together as political journalists in DC. And so I think we learned a lot of lessons early on, not just about like how to frame content and how to deliver uh, quality content, but also recognizing the difficulties and issues of the media business and mm-hmm. the ways trying to monetize it can be the perniciousness of relying sometimes on paid advertising as your sole source of revenue. And, right. you know, I, I admit it's horrible, but seeing what's happening with so many uh, news outlets right now in the, the media business and just the revenue plummeting, even as their readership 
is going through the roof because no advertisers are wanting to put their ads in, a, you know, on a coronavirus story or on, you know, something about, and that's the only news out there right now is coronavirus news. So it's, it, you're seeing people just getting laid off left and right. And that I think is really indicative of a broken, like a broken media model. And so a lot of the folks in the newsletter industry have realized your fortunes can be directly tied to how much people are subscribing to what you're saying, signing up for that. And you can build on that rather than being this sort of two-step dance where you build an audience and then sell that audience to advertisers. It works a lot simpler and more sustainably when you and your audience can be, have a much more direct financial relationship. Yeah. And that's what you guys have always had at Scotchy Flights. It's always been sort of a freemium model where people are either on the list for free or they're paying you directly. There is no third party. There is no middleman and there are no misaligned incentives. Talk to me about your freemium model. How necessary is that? Do you need to have a free tier in order to get paid subscribers? And also, do you think you can start sort of a paid newsletter today and just charge right out of the gate? Or do you think you need to spend time building up some goodwill among free subscribers before you can put a price on it? That is a really good question. I will confess. So let's rewind to the beginning of Sky Street Flights. You know, I found this $130 trip to Milan. I get back, all my coworkers and friends heard about it, I guess, and you know, word had spread. Hey, and they came up to me, hey Scott, I heard about that great deal you got. Can you let me know next time you find a fare like that so I can get in on it too? And so rather than trying to remember every single person I needed to let know about this deal, I was like, why don't I just start a simple little email list? That way I can let everybody know at once. And so that's how Scott's Sheep Flights began. It was literally just the simplest way to be able to broadcast out information to everybody who wanted to get it. And I did it for like 18 months just as a hobby, just for fun. When it had grown enough to the point where I had graduated out of the free tier of MailChimp and started having to pay 50 bucks a month to do that, I wasn't thrilled about that idea to have to pay MailChimp money so I could email information about flights to my friends, but it also told me, wow, there's enough people signed up to this that maybe there's a business opportunity here. And so started throwing around different models in my mind. They, you know, we talked about advertising, supporting business, not only my issues with that from a media and journalism background, but also the fact that look, when you only have like like 5,000 people is incredibly impressive that 5,000 people want to listen to what you have to say. Go tell an advertiser that you have 5,000 people listening to what I have to say. They will laugh you out of the room. Yeah, they don't care. They're like, okay, we'll give you like 50 cents to advertise (laughs) against that. So it's problematic for a number of reasons. Consider the affiliate route. Like what about having affiliate links where if somebody buys something through a link in there, buys a flight that I mentioned. I didn't like that for two reasons. It erodes some trust or has the potential to. I don't think in all instances, I don't think an affiliate fees inherently are always going to erode trust. But I think it can for a certain segment of the audience. And you really would have to have a ton of credibility built up for somebody to say, I am going to ignore the fact that he financially benefits from me personally, and I'm going to take what he has to say at face value. We'd all like to think we have never been influenced. The number of times that I've read on you know, some cooking blog, some financial blog, Yes, I get an affiliate fee for this, but it's my true opinion. Like that may be true, you might believe that, but it still is going to be a lot of folks in the audience who have to question, who have to can run through that question in their mind and are viewing what you have to say through that credibility lens. And so I didn't like that as a sort of model where they have to be thinking about. I set that aside with the freemium model, like 
Spotify was the one that really kind of occurred to me as the most a prominent version where they have both folks who are on the free list and folks who are on the premium list with extra folks for folks who are on the premium with extra perks. Sorry. Reason why I went with that freemium rather than just an all premium tier was twofold. One, first and foremost, I just didn't want to kick anybody off. Like, again, you know, I mentioned like soft, squishy, liberal. I didn't want, I just like, I don't know. I like people. I liked, I like, I've been doing this for a year and a half just for my friends. Like, I didn't want to have to tell any of those 5,000 people who'd said, yeah, we want to listen to what you have to say, Scott. I didn't want to tell them, well, you're going to have to pay me a couple bucks if you, you know, a month if you want to listen to what I have to say. Like, obviously, I wanted to be able to build a business that would, need some amount of revenue to sustain itself. But I wanted there to be the possibility for folks to continue to have that relationship without necessarily being ready or willing to make it a, you know, to take things to the next level, if you will. So I figured, look, why I don't have to kick anybody off. It's not costing me anything to have these folks on the free list. And so it's just a matter of trying to create the structures in place in the business where I can have you know, a limited number of perks for folks who are on the free list and a much greater number of perks for the folks who are on the premium list and let them kind of self-sort in terms of what they want. And what's interesting, going back to your earlier question about what's changed, is that's actually been a, a big sort of ongoing balancing act on our end of trying to make sure that the free list is good enough and appealing enough that folks want to sign up and that they have a good experience, but not so appealing and not so good that there's no reason for anybody to upgrade to the premium list. That is a very, like, I didn't realize coming into this how tricky that balance would be. It sounds kind of obvious when I say in retrospect, but it is incredibly important to try to make it, you might say, oh, well, just make the free list terrible. And that way the premium list is way better. The folks on the free list have a huge incentive to upgrade. Well, they could also just leave. They could also just never sign up. So you need to, there really does need to be a really kind of well thought out and constantly adjusted balance between giving enough of a taste, enough of an appetizer on the limited list, while also not kind of kneecapping yourself and preventing those folks from upgrading. And frankly, early on, I think we probably, we've done some studies or something, we found out we actually made the free list too generous early on. God, it sounds so like pat yourself on the back, but we're providing too much value to folks on the the free list in a way that was actually preventing folks from upgrading. They're like, you know, we would see it on Reddit and on Twitter and elsewhere. They'd be like, oh yeah, just sign up for the free list. It's great. You're not, you don't need need. to sign up for premium. You already get what you need. And I was like, ah, I mean, like I like being able to help people. I want, I want people to get value, but also want to put food on the table. I also want to be able to, you know, continue growing. What have you changed since then to make it sort of more evenly balanced so you actually get people upgrading to the paid list? Yeah. So we, we changed a few things. I mean, so we had a much more kind of convoluted structure early on where folks who are on the free list could only sign up by region rather than by airport. So you would sign up for like the Northeast. So maybe you lived in New York. You couldn't sign up just for New York airport. You'd sign up for the Northeast. So you might get a deal out of Boston or you might get a deal out of like DC or Philly, not New York. It just sort of depended. But whereas in order to get deals out of your specific airport to choose one, you had to be on the premium list. It was a little bit kind of convoluted and it ended up creating a bit of a tech nightmare behind the scenes. Fortunately, we decided as a company to shift away from that. And though we let 
free members select their home airport, which made it a better experience, we changed it in, in a few other ways. So we said, whereas previously any deal could go out to either list, we started to make it explicit that there are certain types of deals that were only going to go to premium members. And so a mistake mm. fair, you know, highly sought after, hugely valuable deal. You know, we, there was a mistake fair the other day, Boston and Puerto Rico for $23 round trip, <laughs> including Christmas and New Year's. It's ridiculous. So you're on the free list. You don't get this at all. That's right. Presumably you see that you didn't get this deal. And so you're like, I should convert to paid. That's the hope. (laughs) Yeah. And so those deals, you know, the ones over Christmas, New Year's, the ones to Hawaii, Alaska, we make that now explicit that we reserve those just for folks on the premium list because we want to balance, you know, the appeal of the premium list for folks who aren't on it yet. I think one of the cool things about having a freemium business is that your particular company, and this is not true for every company. In fact, it's not true for probably 90% of the people I talk to. Your company grows a lot through word of mouth. If somebody saves a lot on a flight, they naturally just want to brag to their friends and tell people, hey, look how much money I saved on this flight. Yes. I'm going so-and-so. I'm going to this place. And like no, this kind of word of mouth growth Nobody has ever bought a $300 flight to Paris and just quietly not, went about their yeah, day. It like, doesn't happen. <laughs> people brag about it and talk about it. And it's a lot of people talk about word of mouth growth as something you can engineer. And of course, there are things you can do to get people talking about you, having better customer support, having a better product. But a lot of it is just sort of inherently baked into what you do. And so if you have a ton of free users, they kind of act as evangelists for Scotch Sheep flights and they tell their friends and they sort of grow the product for you. So the last time we talked, I think you said something like 40 or 50% of your traffic was coming from just word of mouth. Is that still the case today? And how else do you acquire customers besides your users recommending it? I think it might have been even higher than that because it's still to this day, the far and away, the number one source of new signups. We've basically done almost no paid marketing uh, uh, up till this point. I mean, like I said, our sort of what we had planned on doing until about March was, okay, we're going to finally start doing some paid marketing this year. We're going to finally start, you know, uh, trying to put some Scotty Flights ads out there. And then the pandemic hit and we were like, well, so much for that plan. And that's why it's been so, I think we've been so fortunate to have been a company that grown through that organic word of mouth because it just doesn't cost anything. A and B, I think the folks who sign up through that are a lot stickier you know, they're much less likely to churn. They're much more likely to convert. They're much more likely just to come into the situation with a charitable lens. Like if you're, uh, imagine you've got two people who come to your product, one person who came there because they clicked a Facebook ad and it's another person who came there because their best friend told them, hey, I use this service and I love it. I mean, it's not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say which of those two people is more likely to become a customer of yours. It's going to be the one who has recommended it because they come in looking for reasons for yes. Whereas I think with a lot of paid marketing, you might come in being a bit more skeptical. You have a higher bar that you need to clear as a company to convince that person that you're providing good value. So, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head where, you know, organic word of mouth signups, but I mean, it's been majority of our signups for basically since day one. And it's not to say that like the rest of it is not paid marketing. Again, we've done basically no paid marketing. It's basically like media trying to do a lot of uh, not just social media, but a lot of interviews, talking with journalists and reporters about flights demystifying airfare, you know, talking about flight refunds, all this and that, and then trying to get the word of Scotty Flights out there as a result. So, But the other thing too, that not only do I think 
the folks on the free list are valuable as a source of referrals, as source of, you know, they can, someone on the free list might refer their friends just like someone on the premium list might. But I think it's also beneficial because they are a source of people who are much more likely to convert than into a premium user than somebody who's never heard of your product. You know, it's a lot shorter step between being a free member of Scotchy Flights to being a premium mm-hmm. member than it is to being somebody who's never heard of Scotchy Flights to becoming a premium member. This is why free trials exist. This is why freemium models exist. You want to ease folks into it so you can have a chance to be able to demonstrate value in that time. And so for us, even though like I would love for every single person who's on that limited tier to become a paying member of Scotty Flights, we know we have work to do with them. Like we there are a lot of folks that we haven't convinced yet, but they're still said so we value you enough that we want to get your your emails. And, you know, it's incumbent on us to continue providing that and looking for opportunities where we can try to, you know, maybe give a, a nudge or uh, demonstrate enough value that they say, yeah, maybe the premium tier is right for me. But look, I'm not going to pretend like that there's not some segment of folks who have, for one reason or another, decided free tier is where I'm at and I'm not ever going to sign up. And that's still those people are still valuable to us, not only because I love being able to help people travel and enjoy the world and being able to, to not have to overpay for flights, but also because, like you said, they have friends who they can refer. We have ads in the free list that that's important for us to have those, those numbers. There's a lot of reasons why folks on the free list are are still a, a very much a net benefit for the company as a whole, purely in business terms. Well, listen, Scott, I want to respect your time. We've been going for about an hour. I probably have like four or five more questions I want yeah, to ask you. Okay, great. Because I want to dig into this stuff. It's so sure. fascinating. First, you mentioned kind of growing through press. And I've noticed this. I just like, incidentally saw a quote from you in the New York Times. I was just reading about airlines and flight cancellations. And it was kind of like, flights expert, Scott Keys of Scott <laughs> Cheap Flights. And they even put a, like a direct link to Scotch Cheap Flights in this New York Times article and like multiple quotes and links to your Twitter. What's your press strategy? How are you so successful to get into like these sort of top tier publications? And also like, what are the results? You know, do they drive meaningful traffic? Is it worth the effort? Yeah, awesome question. Early on, you would see it very much. You know, anytime there's a press mention, you'd see spikes in you know new signups. And I'm sure those still exist today. They probably exist as much or more as they used to. But because we have a, we're a much bigger company than we were three or four years ago, you don't necessarily see any given day having a huge spike. Now, every once in a while, there might be. The press strategy has been one of a couple different things. I mean, one, we've got a really uh, a shrewd, savvy guy on the team, PR guy named Andrew, who's just amazing at getting, you know, we'll, we'll have different sorts of studies or points we're going to make, you know, or uh, different kind of how-to guides for members about like, for instance, right now, a lot of members have been struggling trying to get refunds for flights that they purchased for travel during the coronavirus pandemic, where the airline is either canceling their flights or it's not safe to travel or destinations have you know bans on, on outside visitors. And in many cases, the airlines have been stonewalling them on a refund that they're legally entitled to, but folks don't necessarily know this, you know, that nor should they. Like who has time to be an expert in everything else in your daily life? but also be an expert in the refund rules of airlines and the regulations that the Department of Transportation has put on this. 
Nobody. Nobody's got time for that. Except, except for Scott Sheep Flights. Yeah. That, I mean, that's what we view our service as, is helping people kind of demystify the sort of weird minutia of this world so that they can be able to use it to their benefit. Knowing that, like, look, it's not important for people to be able to quote chapter and verse of the uh, Department of Transportation regulations, but it is important for them to know at a high level what their rights are. So that they can say, you know, the airline isn't going to be forthcoming with providing a refund. They don't prefer you take a voucher. Uh, it's in their financial interest for that for you to do so. And so if you didn't know that you have a legal right to a refund when an airline cancels your flight, you wouldn't know to press for it. And you wouldn't necessarily get that refund that you're legally entitled to, which is incredibly important for people right now during these like really tough economic times. So even something like that, where, you know, going rants on this about Twitter on Twitter and helping kind of break down section by section of the uh, Department of Transportation, you know, calling out when airlines are doing a, a crap job of treating their customers right in instances where the airlines are doing a good job, all trying to sort of not only educate members, but knowing like, look, there are a lot of reporters that are interested in this, especially there's a lot of local TV that is uh, trying to stick up for consumers, consumers' rights, looking for instances where folks have been mistreated. And so between trying to kind of get information out there through various social media, through our emails, through uh, doing kind of PR pitches, that's been really lucky to be able to get a bunch of press that way. And then once you start to develop those relationships and they can tell through discussions with you that you know what you're talking about, that you're not some flim flam man, that you can actually make interesting points that you're conversant in the, the material. You know, you're not just like flying off at the hip, but you actually are, are an expert in this matters. It's a rare and interesting niche where so few people are experts at airfare. You know, there are a lot of industry experts who might talk about the sort of financials of airlines or the sort of science on airplanes or even the sort of economics of airline routes or stuff like that. But that's not exactly directly applicable to you as a traveler who wants to buy a flight or you as a traveler who wants to get a refund for your flight. There are very few people that are actually experts in that specific domain. So being able to own that domain and being able to say, yeah, we are the, like, we're again, without sounding too braggadocious, like we are authorities on this subject. This is what we have become experts in, and this is what we want to be able to speak about. Then you become top of mind anytime a, a reporter, a journalist, somebody is working on a story that might involve a flight refund, might involve- They just go to you. Exactly. There's not no silver bullet to be able to say like, oh, you know, do this one weird trick and then you'll get a bunch of press. Like it literally involves uh, years of of developing your your credibility, developing your authority, showing that you are uh, have integrity, have are man of your word, and you can speak authoritatively on these subjects. And then it'll start to really kind of reinforce itself. And this is something I think founders it's not an option enough people consider. You know, if you're working on some sort of app that's in an industry or sector, chances are you have a lot of time because this is your job to read about it and become well-versed in it. And the average person, like Scott was just saying, doesn't. You know, they're going on about their day. So that's an opportunity for you to become an expert and share your expertise with your audience, with other people, and just be genuinely helpful. Even if a lot of the help doesn't translate into dollars. And directly, 
you know, it establishes a reputation yes. among the press and the media and it establishes trust among your readers and your subscribers. And so I think if you're working on anything, whether it's productivity software or something in the recruiting space, you're going to have the time to be an expert at that. And you should share the things that you're learning and give tips to the people who follow you. And especially doing it in a way that is immediately accessible and valuable from the user's perspective. You know, I mean, there's a, can't tell you how many bizarre, interesting things in the airline industry that are interesting to me because I'm obsessed with it. But like random traveler, like my wife, who's not interested in the travel, like she loves to travel. She doesn't give two shits about like random airline, you know, airplane that is being retired or random. Like, like I was, I went down a rabbit hole the other day about, have you heard of a crystal hamburgers, like the white castle slider, you know, they had like an airline company in the mid late seventies, early eighties. I found this out randomly because I was like reading about airline bankruptcies and because I wanted to do a Twitter thread about, you know, a lot of questions that folks have are like, should I book a flight if I'm worried that airline is going to go out of business? And so I did this whole big Twitter thread about how bankrupt airlines declaring bankruptcy is very different from an airline going bust. Uh, airlines declare bankruptcy all the time. American has declared bankruptcy. United has, Delta has. They all keep flying through it. It doesn't like the point of it. The Twitter thread was it doesn't really impact you if an airline declared bankruptcy as a traveler. Like you're even if you have existing reservations, your mile almost certainly going to be completely fine. That was the information that I posted publicly because that's what's valuable for users. For me, I loved going down this rabbit hole when I found out it was looking through a, a list of airline bankruptcies that Crystal Hamburgers had an airline in the 70s and 80s and like going through, I literally spent an entire afternoon like reading through the, it's called the Crystal Glazer. It was like a corporate, internal corporate publication where you're, I was just reading every random ass thing about this airline. Totally uninteresting, probably to most people, but I was obsessed. And being able to really differentiate between the information that I think is valuable for members, valuable for the general public, information that is interesting to you personally, is a valuable skill. Knowing what, uh, where to espousing information and where to bite your tongue. Well, I'll tell you, it's interesting to me from a business perspective <laughs> what the uh, the synergy was between having an airline and like a hamburger <laughs> fast food restaurant. There's no pretzels. There's no peanuts. It's only crystal hamburgers on the plane or something like that. <laughs> Funny you should mention, it was based out of Chattanooga, I believe. And they actually uh, have, there were no like crystals nearby. So they actually would put a freezer in with frozen, you could buy like frozen crystal hamburgers in, but very disgusting, but you know, very, yeah. kind of like 70s, 80s TV dinner. Not surprising they went out of business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They actually, well, and that's part of it. They just declared bankruptcy a few months ago. But yeah, I guess the purpose was so the managers and the corporate executives could fly to crystal locations that were in random places around the country, not near a sort of like major commercial airport that or that place that like Delta or United flew. But yeah, apparently it's like a big thing in the 80s. Like like President Reagan held a rally there, like George Bush and Bob Dole both campaigned there. Like this whole like I was like reading this bizarre bygone era. They also bragged about having a 94-year-old pilot, which I was like, I don't think that's <laughs> something you want to brag about. Like that seems like I'm not very I think you want to hide that. I don't think you want simpler to, times. Know, saying the quiet part out loud there. So we're talking about, you know, providing actual value to people, not just telling them everything that you're interested in. And before we started recording, you and I were talking about Sam Parr from the Hustle, who just started his newsletter Trends. 
And I asked him for his tips on how he would start a paid newsletter today. And one of the things he said is very similar to what you're saying. You can't just give people any information. You have to give them valuable information. And in his case, that was helping people make money. So the hustle trends is kind of like spotting gaps in the market and helping, you know, aspiring founders and entrepreneurs start businesses and make more money with their businesses. Whereas you're providing value in almost the opposite way. You're helping people save money with Scotch Sheet Flights. So for probably the vast majority of subscribers, if I'm a premium member and I'm paying you, what is it, $50 a year for a membership? I'm gonna make bucks, but- yeah. I'm gonna make yeah forty nine dollars. I'm gonna make more than that just in savings. But I wonder what the differences between the two are. For example, if you're saving people money, does that mean you can't charge you know a hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars a year like something like the trends which hustle trends would charge? A couple thoughts there. We've had folks tell us, well, Scott, why aren't you charging like five hundred dollars a year? I mean, you know, with the average savings from any like we only focus on the best of the best deals. The average flight that we send out is $550 off of normal prices. And so if you think about that, you know, if you buy one ticket in the next 11 years, so you might ask, like, well, why don't you charge, you know, $500? And the reason why is A, we want to make sure that it is important to us as a company that we have a broad appeal that it's not just at the total, you know, top tippity top. Like it, it's still a driving factor for us to be able to share a love of travel and to be able to help folks be able to. Uh, see places and travel the world where they might not have been able to otherwise afford. And frankly, if you have a $500 sticker price, there are a lot of people that just aren't going to ever sign up for that or not going to be able to to necessarily afford that in the first place. And the $550 savings that they had is not just a matter of me trying to be like a rent extractor and take as much of that as I can. It can be the difference between John Doe down the street being able to take his family on a vacation next year or not. Like that doesn't just have to be a sort of vanity metric of, oh, I saved $500 on my flight. It can literally be the difference for a lot of people on whether or not they can take a trip to somewhere that they've always wanted to see or not. And so that's always been a very top of mind thing for me. You know, again, coming at this as someone who didn't come at this as a businessman, didn't, yeah, I never took business class in college. I didn't have, don't have an MBA, never had a business plan, never even really, frankly, was an aspiring entrepreneur. It was all very serendipitous coming, falling into this life as a cheap flight expert and entrepreneur. But I came at it as somebody who just loved to travel and loved to be able to help other people be able to to travel and not over have to overpay for their flights. And so that, because that was sort of the North Star for me, that helps kind of guide those decisions. The other thing too, though, that occurred to me when you're talking about, you know, providing valuable information and the hustle trends, do you listen to jazz ever? Yeah, a little bit. I actually played alto sax in high school nice. and was part of the jazz band. I played the trumpet. Not well, but I played it. So, you know, one of the things that they, they, they always say about jazz is it's not just the notes you play, but it's the notes that you don't play, like like the space in between the notes, the, the ones that go and said. Think about that a lot and try to employ that as much as I can in the types of information and in the types of deals that we're sending. Because it's not just the deals that we're sending out. It's not just the information that we provide, you know, on, on Twitter or when we're sending out, you know, we just sent out this big thing about flight refunds to all our members this past weekend to make sure that they're educated on it. And even in the way I structured that, I wanted to make sure that it was as kind of cut to the bone with no excess fat on it, no wasted words, because mm-hmm. recognizing that 
people, there's a real attention economy out there where people have so many things asking, you know, asking for their, their time. And you're lucky if somebody gives you 30 seconds, gives you 45 seconds. And so it's important to me that the information that I provide to them in that limited time they're going to give to me is valuable stuff, is stuff that they're actually would be important to them. And I don't spend tons of time on fluff, you know, talking about the weather, talking about my sort of like dream, you know, childhood memories of visiting Puerto Rico or something. I want to get to the things (laughs) that are actually important to them. And on the deals front, it's as important to me that not only the deals that we do send, but the deals that we don't send, because it's not like, like I'll see some places out there. Oh, we have thousands of deals a day. And it's like, well, that's great, but people aren't booking thousands of deals a day. People are, you know, booking one, maybe two trips a year. Could you imagine signing up for a company like Sassy Flights and they sent you a thousand emails every day of places that you could go? I wouldn't get past 10 before I clicked on subscribe. I mean, the value you're providing is curation. The whole point is you do the work of looking through the thousands and figure out what's good for me. And I don't want to do that work. That's exactly right. So many, I think people fall into a trap of thinking comprehensiveness is the key. You want to be everything. You want to provide it all. It needs to be as thorough as possible. When in reality, the key is curation. The key is giving people the information that's relevant, that's important, that they need to know. And as importantly, not giving them the information that is not important that they don't need to know. You know, the notes that are played and the notes that are unplayed are right. as equally important with one another. You know, you said people have a million things to do and it reminds me of something I tell founders all the time, which is that there's literally billions of options for what people can do with their time or their money. There's billions of websites and Netflix shows and YouTube videos and books they can read and stores they can go to, and blogs they can read. So it's always kind of a minor miracle if someone is... <laughs> basically chosen you over all these other options for what they could be doing in this particular moment. And I think one of the issues that people have with content-based businesses, especially paid content, is they worry so much about the competition, which I think is a legitimate concern, right? Someone else can write something. And there's so much information online. Why is anyone ever going to pay for what I'm doing? I know just through even just my interactions with you, like we did an interview with you on Andy Hackers, like 2016. And then we interviewed someone who turned out to be like a clone of Scotch Cheap Flights. <laughs> and we exchanged some emails about it. How do you think about the competition? How do you ensure that you know customers stick with you and it's not sort of a race to the bottom and your prices drop to zero? because other people are offering cheap flights as well. Yeah, I think for the most part, if you're focused on doing the best job that you can and focused on that relationship with your members, competition doesn't matter. You need to be mindful of competition. I think it can be useful and helpful as a way to make sure you don't get complacent, make sure, you know, a little kind of like spur in your butt type of thing to make sure you don't just rest on your laurels. But I think for the most part, very few people are doing a ton of, comparison shopping in their day-to-day life. It's mostly a question of, am I enjoying this product or not? Do I want to continue to get this this service or not? We're much more judged against a quality metric of in and of ourselves than against somebody else. And so for us, you know, it's been the biggest competition in our mind has always been apathy. Yeah, one, it's also just the fact that like, look, I cannot believe the fact that there are 2 million members of Scottish Cheap Flights. Like that is remarkable to me. I would never in a million years have dreamed that. And yet I need to remind myself that in the United States alone, there are 328 million people who are not Scottish Cheap Flights members and who we still need to go and try to convince that like, hey, yeah, stop overpaying for flights. Come get, you know, find out about cheap flights here. And so that sort of reminder is always kind of 
helpful, but also trying to remember that like for the people who are signed up, they're going to be happy as long as you're continuing to give a great value to them, as long as they're enjoying the deals we send. And part of that is making sure that, you know, we're only play, uh, sending them the good ones and not sending them the fluff that we're, you know, building that trust by not taking affiliate fees and that they can know that every deal we send, we, we 100% believe this is an amazing fair that, you know, might not last very long. So it's partly building that that trust, but then also just being evidence through your work over the years that people see if they've been on it for a while, they're like, yeah, you know, these are just, it's a higher quality. It's the types of deals I get, the speed that I get it, the knowing that, you know, these mistake fares that don't come in very quickly, that I need to find out about that as early as possible before it disappears. And so if you find out about it two hours later, it might be too late. Those are the types of things that we've been doing everything we can to try to continue to kind of, it's almost like a Michael Phelps thing where you have already set the Olympic record, you already set the world record, and then you're just trying to beat that. Like, like you're not, you're just continually trying to challenge yourself to get better and do more. And that I think has been really helpful for us, but always with the North Star of trying to kind of put ourselves in our members' shoes of like, only if it's providing value and only if it's making members happier, is it something that we're interested in? On the topic of competition, you mentioned Substack earlier, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot where, yeah. you know, there's so many more platforms now and like platforms have been around for a while. For example, if you're a video-based content creator, you've got YouTube and there's this promise that they're going to help you with distribution, which they actually do because they have the viewership numbers to actually be able to do that. And now we're seeing kind of the same thing emerge with paid newsletters and paid blogs. So Substack is kind of a platform that I guess helps with distribution, et cetera. And you mentioned you've got some journalist friends who are doing very well on Substack. There are also platforms like Medium, which you know sort of help you get paid for your writing. And then there are also tools that aren't really platforms, but they just sort of make it easier to get it set up, but they don't take any of your revenues. And I don't know if you've seen Ghost, it's kind of like a slicker version of WordPress, but they have a direct integration with Stripe now where you can set up a blog and a newsletter and basically start accepting payments from your readers from day one. If you were to start Scotch Cheap Flights from scratch today, you know, would you use any of these platforms or any of these tools? And you know, if you did, how would you differentiate and sort of set yourself apart? Because I know you've spent a lot of time optimizing your homepage and it's kind of a work of art in getting people to subscribe and, and differentiate your brand. So what are your thoughts on the kind of ecosystem facing writers today? Man, that is a great question. I think it would depend what my goals are. If my goal is like, I want to be able to make a living for myself doing what I love to do, but I'm not necessarily interested in building a whole business beyond just like myself or maybe, you know, an assistant or something like that, then yeah, I would absolutely be like going with a, a Substack model or something like that. And frankly, that appeals to me as, as somebody who, you know, as a former journalist who loves to write, I a hundred percent like see the appeal to it. And in an alternate reality where I'm not running Scott Street Flights, I might be on the Substack train doing that. Like I said, I have a lot of, of friends who are doing them themselves and have been having great experiences with it. I think if you have ambitions of building a business, a sort of model like that is very helpful for the early days for getting started, taking care of the logistics of, you know, all of this sort of behind the scenes framework, the unsexy stuff of like sending emails and IP reputations, more like just stuff that even today makes me doze off. Uh, but is that that is critical infrastructure if you want to send emails and not have them go to people's spam boxes or not have them go to people's, you know, promotions tab or things like that. I think places like Substack are amazing for being able to sort of 
get up and running, and especially if you're writing for yourself, still able to retain most of the revenue. But I think if you're talking about building a business and and especially have ambitions to grow it to a medium-sized business or larger, the hurdles would probably start to become untenable pretty quickly. And and so a couple of hurdles in my stand out to me. One is obviously the revenue cut. There's already revenue cut anytime you're processing credit cards, uh, you know, the whether it's Stripe or Square or or whoever, they're always, you know, taking some cut of the transaction that's unavoidable. But then the more kind of services you layer on top of that, the more mouths there are to feed before the money starts to get to you. And so, you know, when you're talking about you're making a hundred dollars and I, I don't know exactly what Substack's fees are, let's say it's 10%, and then you've got like 3% for the credit card. Well, you know, you've made $87 rather than 100. That's still pretty good. But what? let's say you're talking about 10 million, all of a sudden you're paying a million point three to the credit card, you know, a million dollars to Substack and 300,000 to the credit card company. You can see how it starts to become like a huge expense really, really quickly as you start to scale up. So there's questions about that and the question about you and your relationship with your audience, you know, your email list is incredibly important, incredibly valuable if you're building that sort of structure. And, I, and I'll be honest, I don't know exactly how it works with, with Substack. Let's say you're a writer on there and you decide to leave because you want to start your own business. You don't want to be paying the fee. I don't know if you're allowed to bring your sort of your email list with you to still have that connection with your audience or not. And if you're not, that's a huge hurdle. And that would be something that would scare me off if I had ambitions to build a company because that would tell me I'm basically locked in to being on Substack in perpetuity. I could never, never leave if if the circumstances change. You don't happen to know, do you, how it works? No, I'm not, not quite sure. I should sign up and check it out. I mean, but there are other models too, like Patreon, for example, which I'm pretty sure doesn't give you direct access to like your subscribers, email addresses and contact information. And it, it's a tough balance for those platforms, I think, because on one hand, they want you to sign up. So they want to offer you perks like that, but they don't want it to be that easy for you to leave mm-hmm. and just graduate. And they don't want to have a business model where literally everyone who's successful leaves their platform. <laughs> so I agree with you. And I like that you framed it in terms of kind of, you know, what are you doing this for? Are you just a writer who loves to write? Or are you more, you know, trying to wear the business hat? In which case you probably want to be responsible for all areas of your business. And it's almost yeah. like being an artist or a musician, you know, like you go to the record label because you love to sing. Well, guess what? Like you've just outsourced like three quarters of your business to them. Like they're charged for distribution now and the business model and the marketing and all you're doing is the product, the singing. So of course you're going to give up a ton in, in response to doing that. So it's kind of the same for writers, I think. Yes. That couldn't have said it better myself. So the last thing I want to ask you about, and then I finally let you get out of here <laughs> and go about your life sure. is, is scalability. I mentioned earlier that one of the advantages uh, that code has, that it's always been kind of a rare thing. There are much fewer, you know, coders in the world and there are writers is slowly disappearing. And so technology is sort of no longer becoming, um, unless you're Google or something, you can afford to invest in all sorts of technology that others can't. It's no longer really a moat. Whatever you build, others can build. But one of the advantages that I think code has over media, it is just infinitely scalable. You build a product, that product provides a service. You don't have to keep working on it and keep hammering away at it to provide that service. Whereas if your service is you know, providing business advice or finding cheap flights for people or something, you actually have to keep doing that every day, week after week, month after month on end. And if you want to scale up your team and do it even bigger, then you have to actually hire people rather than just writing more code. So how do you think about scaling your team? And you know, what's your advice for someone out there who's sort of like stymied by this, this stumbling block and they're not sure that they can really build and scale a team and they're worried that it's going to be a lot of hassle to do that? Yeah, there's a temptation among 
tech founders, Silicon Valley types to always be asking the question, can it scale? But especially always looking for scalable solutions. And it's not that that is wrong or misguided, but I think there is a temptation to always be looking at that as a solution without necessarily thinking about the areas where that might not be applicable. You know, it's a classic sort of man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So you take something like content curation, finding cheap flights, even something like like writing articles. There is certain things that humans do well that computers are not especially designed to do well. You know, a computer, it'd be hard to train a computer to have the creativity to paint the Mona Lisa, you know, or to write Moby Dick or something like that because they are X, Y, and Z technological reasons. And so to me, in my mind, differentiating between those two factors is the key there. Realizing what are the things that, you know, you don't necessarily want humans having to every single little thing that can be, you know, eminently repeatable. Yeah, look for scalable tech solutions on those, but also making sure that you're not trying to apply that solution to areas where it is important that humans write it, not just because they can do it better, but also because that's what that's telling your audience. If you're a subscriber, you're a reader, you're something, people aren't stupid. Like they can realize when something, even take something like customer support, they can tell when that email that they've gotten in return is written by a computer or a person. You know, they can tell when that. Twitter account is is a bot or a person a lot of the time, especially in the in the world of companies, business, tech. So why admire the pursuit of efficiency and trying to do things as scalable as possible? Reputation and brand, it's easy to overlook how important those can be as you're building your company, but also as you develop a user base, as a member base in building that sort of two-way relationship with them, where if they feel like, yeah, that's another person over there behind the screen who I understand, who gets me, who's listening to me, that is a much different relationship than one where they feel, you know, like they're just, they talk to some chat bot that's talking to them and has decoded what they said and gives you X, Y, and Z option. I mean, I'm not saying like, oh, self-help FAQs are a terrible thing. Like they can be important in some context, but I don't overlook the importance of building brand loyalty and building customer loyalty by looking for those areas of human interaction where by having that interaction with the person, they actually grow to like your brand more. It's not always just a question of efficiently connecting the customer with the answer to the question that they have. It can also be an opportunity to have a good quality interaction with that person where they leave that interaction, they leave that conversation with a higher opinion of you and your company than they had coming into it. Does that make sense? That's such a good point because even like a company like Google, for example, where primarily people say pretty good things about it and like it, consistently the negative things I hear are they've automated their customer support, your account can get deleted or closed and you have no recourse, you have no idea what's going on. They can take down your Chrome extension and it's just all automated. And like, that's just a tremendous source of frustration. And to your point earlier that it's kind of man with a hammer, the full saying is to a man with a hammer, pretty much every problem looks like a nail. If you're a developer and you think your company is going to be 100% code all the time, then you're going to neglect the fact that some parts of your company don't scale with code. And eventually you're going to have to hire, right? It's just if you grow your business, you're going to have to hire no matter how much code your company depends on. So it's really not 
a disadvantage sort of company where you get practice hiring from the beginning. Because even if you have a, you know, a SaaS business, you're going to do that eventually. And yeah. that's what I've seen talking to hundreds of founders. I've never met anyone who's like, we're doing $10 million a year in revenue. And it's just, you know, me by myself writing all this code. <laughs> like you have to hire customer support. You have to hire people to help you out. So you might as well get practice doing that early on. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, Scott, I've taken up way too much of your time. Thank you so much for sharing your advice and your wisdom with us and coming on and telling us how you're handling the pandemic and surviving things. Not at all. This has been really fun. I appreciate your, your having me on, getting to, to chat about this stuff. It's been really fun. So thank you. I'm indebted to you. Yeah. Well, best of luck in the future. Uh, can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what's going on at Scotch Cheap Flights and where they can find yeah, more about what you share? Go, come to scottscheapflights.com. No apostrophes, no underscores, no spaces, just scottscheapflights.com. We'd love to, we'd be honored to find cheap flights for you out of your home airport because it's what we're doing all day, every day. We'd love to be able to, to connect you, make sure you don't miss out when those uh, great deals pop up at your home airport. All right. Thanks so much, Scott. Awesome. Thanks, Colin. Take care now. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there if you're on a Mac is to visit ndhackers.com slash reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening and as always, I will see you next time. <laughs>